Welcome, everybody. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a bunch of a TV show this week. We are doing Westworld. I'm behind. I'm behind. I didn't see any of this show hardly. I watched a couple episodes with some friends when it first came out, and 2016 was the first season, so I just got into it this week. Big budget show on HBO. Huge. Uh, it's insane. It's executive produced by J.J. Abrams. It was created by Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, which is his wife. They are the showrunners. I didn't know he was... Oh, I didn't know that was his wife. Thing. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. For those that don't know, Jonathan Nolan brother of Christopher Nolan. Jonathan Nolan is the writer behind a lot of Christopher Nolan's famous Batman director. These weird cerebral brothers getting movie, around yeah. and talking about consciousness. So Jonathan Nolan wrote Memento, which was the first one, which is a classic. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. If you haven't seen that, Prestige, Dark Knight, Interstellar. He's responsible for writing all of those and his brother directed. One of the most uh, exciting filmmakers of our time right now. Odd piece of history for them. They're both from England, although they split their childhoods between London and Chicago. Yeah, Christopher has an accent. Jonathan does not. Jonathan adopted a <laughs> Chicago accent, which maybe also speaks to their personalities or the jobs that they have, where mm. one of them is behind the scenes, like a writer would be like, yeah, I'll have a Chicago accent. <laughs> I'll fit in. <laughs> That's interesting. And the director, the head of it all is like, well... He's true to himself. Yeah. <laughs> something, I don't know. Um... But he met his wife, Jonathan Nolan, did, met Lisa Joy at the premiere of Memento. And oh, then wow. she had been, she, she's known for doing the show's Burn Notice and Pushing Daisies. Oh, cool. Okay. She's the head on those. I wasn't familiar, as familiar with yeah. that. That's interesting. So yeah, as far as the show itself, brief kind of- Dense. This is another yeah. dense one, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. And this is dense, not just in the plot lines alone, but in the way that this is actually constructed. It, it, it takes its time, actually- planting these seeds uh, and it jumps around in in timeline a lot it, it is really really dense to get to really get your feet under you on this one because you're 30 years in the past and then you're present day and then you're a little bit in the future and then you're a little bit behind and then you're 30 years in the past again and it's been two minutes and you don't know who is a human and who is an android and we thought little fires was dense <laughs> this is basically just a theme park where people can live out their wildest fantasies it's like red dead but if you but if, you know it's jurassic park without the dinosaurs but it's the wild west shoot them up and and, and just kind of like a las vegas of, but then kind of, of like with irobot <laughs> where the robots are not allowed to harm or androids they basically look like people are not allowed to harm the humans involved so you can kill people or do whatever you want and then it's fine of course they're sentient and the hosts the androids eventually so therein lies a lot of the drama here is you have these, uh, a Blade Runner type of replicant idea of the, they're, they're not human, they're machines, but they could have sentience. Maybe they're attaining sentience moment by moment, and there is something actually looming over them and holding them back, rolling them back even. Mm -hmm. That becomes the conceit of most of the show is that these, these things that are there for people's entertainment actually might be more human than anybody is giving them credit for. <sighs> and if it sounds get like overwhelmed. <laughs> if it sounds like something you've heard of. So the big conceit behind it is the fact that it, it sounds kind of like, oh, you're in a video game, but it's real life, but there's these 
non-player characters uh, if if the AI actually went back to their like AI family and sat yeah. down and like <laughs> told them what they saw you do to the square the town square to his like his wife and you know like the actual repercussions of like what you just thought was a flippant video game to just live out a wild fantasy of you know whatever is in your heart I guess yeah <laughs> um Jonathan Nolan, he said he took inspiration from Red Dead Redemption, Bioshock, Skyrim. He's super into video games, he said, before he had oh, kids. nice. And started See, I was down watching it going, like, you know, the, uh, Red Dead was already out in, in the lexicon years and years before that, but then the sequel has come out now in in the midst, past the second mm-hmm. season. Yeah. So it's, I was th- sitting there watching it going, oh, I bet the creators here have absolutely, they probably love the first Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you're not into video games. informed this piece, yeah. which then has probably informed the new Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting that these these things are coming along at the same time because yeah. they're, they're definitely talking to each other. And that's something I was sitting there realizing is that the artist in this piece influenced the artist of this piece, which probably tr- turned back around and influenced yeah. the first artist again. <laughs> And if you're not into video games, these are just video games where you can explore the world, basically do almost whatever you want within the video game. Open world, they call it. And Red Dead Redemption is in set in the Wild West. But he was saying the big thing is he wanted to write a story in which the protagonist's actions aren't a part of the story. So that's the big flip is that you're taking most of these from the perspective of these AI android hosts that essentially look human. The story centers around one of these hosts, these AI. Uh, her name is Dolores. And you're following her throughout her time at the park. And at the time of the, at your time at the park, these hosts can be interchanged of different roles and people, different personalities. And it's all thought to be washed away. Dolores is in the process over the first season of actually attaining consciousness. It's a very slow process that she is pushed around at what seems like the whims of the wind, and we learn later is not at all at the whims of the wind that that everything has been predetermined to some degree by a creator. Yeah. And in terms of the the confusion and the depth and the interwoven layers, I saw in some production stuff that the scripts were very much on a need-to-know basis. Most of the actors had redacted scripts. Anthony Hopkins was one of the exceptions, Mm. but he had to push for that too because he is one of the biggest central characters, which we won't spoil anything, but he needs to know what the whole story is. But most of the people here in this, especially the, the characters that are playing the androids, even the actors didn't know what the story holds for the future. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like. As an audience member, it's a dense show. It was hard to keep it was hard to keep up with at the time when it first came out. I couldn't I was you know, I it was it was hard. It was inaccessible for me. So I can't imagine being in the show. <laughs> and I can't read the back half of the episode 4 and they won't even let me have 7. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever, you know, however it was. And maybe you're playing <laughs> three different characters right, and you don't exa- even know. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you might be playing a, a whole bunch of other characters and you don't know it yet. And that, that it, it's so I'm I, I think it's kind of funny, but that must have been quite a ride. But I guess as an actor, that was pretty exhilarating, I guess. I and mean, yeah. it forces you to really be honest. And it's really interesting with the idea of if these if these robots do get their memory cleared all the time and starting fresh and going re going through it again, it's almost as if the creators uh, the filmmakers are are playing a little bit of that, you know, mind games. Yes, them. exactly. Yeah. They're they're doing that with the, with the knowledge of the script. 
um, they're they're being intentionally withholding to create a certain reaction out of out of the actor um, that then can get juxtaposed to a different performance later when they're in the know and they've passed that point in their arc. Yeah, but a new the, this new season that has just come out is more relevant because it does kind of flip the script and present a whole new scenario, if you will. And so I guess you're saying that you think it's more accessible to come in right now, which is why we're talking about it. Yeah, I, I was looking at it as I was going back through the pilot this time and then going through the season finale and then researching the second season and realizing where the show has come now. Season three is in the real world. And they've gone really big, 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 big scale with it. Everybody thought that the first season was was huge. And it was on its in its own right. They've gone even bigger. It's kind of hard to Im- imagine a show this big getting bigger, but they did go bigger. It's a completely different sci-fi universe now we're in the real, wor- real world. If you think about big sci-fi uh, franchises like Alien, they kept that pretty isolated. You only saw out in space, out on the extradition. Mm-hmm. You never went back home to see what the real world was like. Yeah. In Jurassic Park, you never really went back to the States to see what was going on. And if we realized we could just clone anything we want, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is this show is actually taking that leap of like, OK, you've been in the park. You've been in in La La Land this whole time. We're going to take you to and show you what real what the real world is. And they will probably like. expand it for the next seasons massively. And so looking at how this show has spread out now, I'm actually thinking it might be easier to just jump in season three. If you haven't been following this the whole time, it might be a little bit more accessible to jump in with season three uh, because it's a completely new story now. It's a right. total reboot. And they're because they are good filmmakers, they... Well, not a reboot. It still fits it's in. It's not a reboot, but it, it is quite it is a, a bit of a reset. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, not a reboot, like a totally different thing, but it is... Definitely a new flavor. So that was that was something that was kind of leaking into my head as I was researching all of this. That if this seems really trepidatious for you and you're in and dense, an entryway here might to just be cut straight into the new stuff. Yeah. What I cut into this week was something even light years before what we're talking about, which was a book, which was the screenplay for the movie that came out in 1973. So technically it's a book. I looked it up. The cheapest one is like $200 on Amazon because they only printed it once, probably only one copy. But it was the screenplay (laughs) from the movie that was wildly successful in 73. The author is known for writing books, but he didn't do a novelization of this. They just basically took the screenplay, put it in paragraph form, (laughs) slapped a paperback on the front and the back. There we go. And then sold it. Ship it, boys. The person who did this is Michael Crichton which if you've heard his name before, he is a master of sci-fi. The biggest thing he's known for is Jurassic Park. By far and away, Jurassic Park had put, I mean, he's going to be a name that's with us for a long time. The interesting thing with this story, Westworld, is he thought, and I found this, he felt that the story was very visual and that it would not work as a book. So he never Mm. intended to write it as a book, and it was always going to be just a movie, although most of his books have become movies. Right. Um, I was wondering about that exact thing, and uh, that's part of why I wanted to do this this week, is this is a very unconventional way that this piece of media came out of a legitimate author. (laughs) Right. Uh, I think that's really worth shining a light on, of just being like, hold on. So he's he's definitely a great, like, he's a great author, 
this was just a movie to him. Yeah. Always, forever. Always. And we'll see that he has his finger in more pies than you could imagine as we go through what he's done. This one, there was some chaos involved in making it. All the major studios turned it down except for MGM. Ouch. And at the time, MGM was known for having a bad reputation in terms of the production, treating the director's control, mm -hmm. budget, all kinds of stuff. And that proved to be true. But they were the only person who would take it. Right. or the only studio who would take it. And if the plot and situation sort of sounds cliche or has a lot of mm -hmm. classic elements, it's because, and it's hard to imagine, this was the classic for it. Like you think of the Terminator, there in the movie Westworld, there's one main robot called the Gunslinger, and he enacts justice, and he takes, and his face melts, and all this stuff. I found, which I'll post a link to, Arnold Schwarzenegger credits the Gunslinger in Westworld. He watched that and modeled the Terminator after oh, no that guy's performance in Westworld. Tight. The other thing, obviously, Jurassic Park, which came about 20 plus mm -hmm. years later, mm -hmm is about a amusement park <laughs> gone amok and the attractions terrorize the people there. It's exactly the same thing, but it's, I mean, it's literally the same guy who came up with it. In terms of the movie, kind of crazy that he anticipated what we now call computer viruses, because there were no personal computers at the time. Right. There wasn't even really an understanding of basic technology right. as we know it now. The film version is one of the first pieces of fiction to conceptualize one computer's problem affecting another computer's problem as a form of contagion really? or a pandemic where it spreads from one thing to another. That's actually pretty fascinating. So he's the first, this is the first thing this weird movie from the 70s. Oh, wow. That they specifically use the term computer virus. Now it's so commonplace. My mom has been screaming about computer viruses <laughs> for 30 years. Yeah, you can blame <laughs> the original Westworld. <laughs> In terms of the other stuff that they revolutionized, this is the first film to use digital image processing, aka computer effects. Whoa. No, no film. It was all practical. Like Star Wars had come after this. Yeah. This is 73. The thing that they did was when the gunslinger is tracking, they're able to track whether somebody's a person or a robot via heat. Uh -huh. So Michael Crichton wanted, since he also directed this, this was the first his first feature. The directorial, directorial debut, debut of Michael Crichton. <laughs> he wanted it to look like, how does a machine look at something? So uh -huh. he's tracking the heat, but he wanted it to be all pixelated and weird and have computery effects. Oh, yeah. And he's yeah. like, well, then we should just use a computer to make that. So they were like, well, the only people that we know who can do this is the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. Very high tech still. But they gave him a rate and it was two minutes to do two minutes of that kind of footage where it's all pixelated mm -hmm. uh, would be $200,000 and would take nine months. Oh, my god! Their budget was only a million and a quarter dollars. Uh. <laughs> Thank God for MGM, who just was <laughs> like, well, you have to do this for a million. And he was like, we can't. And then they were like, okay, we'll give you 250000 more. So he's like, well, we can't spend that much money on this. So on they were able to get- Two minutes of footage? Well, how much was it? Two minutes for two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Hundred thousand dollars a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was able to get somebody else to do it in four months for twenty thousand dollars, but it was extremely rigorous, and it was literally down to the last week before the movie was oh, set man. to be print out. They were like, "We're still working on it." Oh um, man! But I'll and post a link because it looks it all the reels. Yeah. Oh It God. looks. Uh, it looks really crappy now, but it's on YouTube. State and of the art, baby. The first computer <laughs> effects. Of all time. That's fascinating. That's After, super cool, actually. Yeah. 
after the hellacious production, uh, he took a year off completely, completely switched genres, wrote the book The Great Train Robbery, which is set in Victorian oh. England, and uh, didn't make another film for five years wow. after that, though continued to write. He also didn't like it because most people saw it as, oh, this is about humans being against technology and these technology running amok, mm-hmm. whereas he thought people really missed the scene. There's a scene where the head honchos of the company, Delos, mm-hmm. are trying to decide what to do, and they wonder whether or not they should shut down the resort, mm-hmm. and they choose not to. He thought the intention of the movie was to warn about corporate greed right? in the site, which Jurassic Park does much better, yeah. but he was very, very unhappy with the end result of it, which it was just this wacky action movie. <laughs> about robots killing humans. And he was like, that wasn't, I, w- I wanted to point to the, yeah, the guys in suits saying, no, they'll be fine. We can figure it. It's like, no, you caused the problem from yeah. the beginning. Yeah. There was a sequel, which we ha- he had nothing to do with, called Future World, that came out in 76. This is the first feature film to use 3D CGI. Oh, wow. It uses footage of a hand by a grad student at the time in California, this guy is Ed Catmull, who then became the co-founder of Pixar. Yeah. Oh. So the first use of 3D CGI is also in Westworld. Oh, my gosh. In the sequel. Oh, my gosh. So for how weird and obscure it seems It's got now, a pedigree. It's got a pedigree. <laughs> oh, God. Michael Crichton. He's a madman. <laughs> he, uh, like I said, he has done so much beyond this. He had 18 major novels, 13 films were made based on his books, and he also directed seven films. So just- I, I was like, yeah, he directed the Westworld movie because he was an author and they let yeah. him write something and he did something. That's how it goes. But they don't typically, they don't always get to do a bunch more. Yeah. For comparison, I don't mean to interrupt yeah, you. That's fine. Stephen King, not directed that much, not right. directed that many films. Mm-hmm. He's directed a few films, not that many. Yeah. There was a time when in the 90s, there, there was a little New Yorker comic and this woman was in the airport bookstore kind of thing. And she was like, do you have anything that's not by Michael Crichton? Because <laughs> he was doing everything. Here's This is going to be insane to you. Here's the benchmark. In 1995, the cultural moment he had, this is three different pieces of media, the nation's number one best-selling book, The Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park. Oh, man. He had the number one movie at the time, Congo, which is based on a book that he wrote. And he had the number one TV show, ER, which he wrote. ER? Yes. Oh, my God. So the trifecta. Now- That's staggering. He repeated that the Did next- man wa- walking around that weekend? Yeah. <laughs> Well, so here's the other thing. That's your everywhere. Here's the other thing. He won. (laughs) He won again. He repeated it in 1996. No. Yes. With Airframe, the book that he wrote, Twister, the movie that he wrote. No, he wrote Twister? (laughs) I I love Twister. I did not know this. And ER, the TV show, was still the number one. (laughs) Yeah. Two years in a row. George Clooney. (laughs) Movies, books, and TV shows. He did them all. He really was on fire. Yeah. I mean, on fire. Fire. It was he was reportedly in the nineties, which cannot be corroborated, but he was earning a hundred million a year. Oh my god. Mid- I mean, he was the epicenter of movies, books, and TV shows. What um, a boss. So yeah, I had to go into his life. Like how who who in the world yeah. is he? Who is this man? I don't know. Yeah, even now I know this? you know he does all this stuff, but I feel like I know nothing about him at all. Yeah. <laughs> He's the R.L. Stein of of, of popular media. Yeah. 
And the reason you don't know about him is a lot of his, he was very private. He didn't want people in his business. Mm. But he, uh, just as well, the start. Well, you got some nine. Yeah, maybe. In terms of uh, his education, he went to Harvard in 1960. He was there for English. And there was a professor who was, he thought, being overly critical. And so he was trying to figure out how he could accuse this professor of giving him abnormally low marks on his papers. Mm. So he submitted an essay for an assignment. It was an essay by George Orwell, who did Animal oh, Farm in 1984. Yes, as we have covered. And the professor didn't know that and gave him a B minus. And so he was like, I thought Orwell was a wonderful writer. And if a B minus is all that Orwell could get from this guy, I'd better drop English as my major. Whoa. So he was like, I'm not a writer. That's not what I do in wow. college. <laughs> I, like, I like the idea. Also, because he, he didn't get caught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, at least he walked away. I like I I I think I've no harm no foul on that. He's like, "Here, I'm going to plagiarize and see what happens." Oh, well, okay. I need to get out of this. I mean, <laughs> yeah. this is okay. Yeah. This is not my speed. <laughs> I'm not even going to go not even going to like be righteous about it and be like, "George Orwell wrote this. You don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> no, he's just like, "Oh, well, this isn't for me. Yeah. This. this isn't for me." Um, just as a little thing so that you can picture him he is six foot nine he is a he is a huge individual what? and that ah uh, that's why he's got these lofty ideas looking <laughs> down on us all the time. but it's something that as he goes through life he's also very insecure about because mm. it is such a huge imposition and he's always looked at as a freak and especially with his popularity and his fame he oh. wants even less to be noticed. No. Like that's, you know, but just keep that in the back of your mind of this is who this person is. Mm, they don't want to be seen. Yeah. So instead of getting his degree in English, he's still at Harvard. He got his degree in biological anthropology. Whoa. What? Uh, then he enrolled in Harvard Medical School. Show off. <laughs> he's a smart guy. This is why his works <laughs> are so long. Like a lot he's of people think, like, oh, how do you know how to write about all this stuff? Because he learned it. <laughs> like, God. This um, guy, this guy is incredible. Yeah, I'm loving this. Although two weeks into the medical school, he he knew he absolutely hated it. Oh, really? Yeah. He uh, he started to write novels under a pseudonym, John Lang, and he said, "quote for furniture and groceries, just to like pay bills." They were just like seedy kind of paperback adventure novels. Mm. Um, he didn't want his name to be used because he was afraid when he did become a doctor that his patients would recognize it and they'd be afraid that he'd break confidentiality or use them uh, in his work or oh, something. Yeah, yeah. So that's why he kept the pseudonym. After th his third year of medical school, he said, like, instead of being like, oh, maybe medicine is for me, he just knew like, no, medicine is not for me. I've tried it this long. Yeah. I actually love writing. I love finding the moments in which people kind of like have the sobriety or at least accept that uh, that law and like the thing they knew <laughs> all yeah. along or something. Uh, yeah. Any any time where somebody has the the wherewithal to put themselves beside themselves and go, you know what, it was this all along. Something like that. I I, yeah. I just love those moments in people in people's lives. And a big part of it, it was, takes a lot. Yeah, his his. Uh distaste for the medical system like he had he hated that the doctors cared for their own interests or their own prestige over the patient's mm -hmm. needs and he just saw yeah. that and maybe it was a bad hospital or a bad situation mm -hmm. or a bad time but that definitely influenced you can him. definitely see some influence of that directly in the <laughs> west world oh gosh yeah 
Everyone takes advantage of the host. If you haven't seen it, literally everyone. Everyone inside the world, everyone outside the world. They're just, they're not, they're just playthings. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go on. Yeah. He, uh, so he graduated in 1969 with an MD, but he never got a license to practice. Huh. So he never became a doctor, but he did, he did it all. He That's, did it all. And that, then, yeah. Uh, that same year in 1969 is when he published The Andromeda Strain, which is the first book under his name, Michael hmm. Crichton which then became an insanely big movie. He's 26 years old. The movie came out two years later. Whoa. So this is where we have another famous name from media, which comes in, which is Steven Spielberg. So 1969, Spielberg just got hired as a TV director at Universal. So he was a contract TV director mm-hmm. to do. Spielberg hasn't even started his shtick. He hasn't done mm-hmm. Jaws yet, nothing, nothing going on. Michael Crichton is a 26-year-old who's just gotten his book to be turned into a movie. A major motion picture. Steven Spielberg's first assignment was to show Michael Crichton around the Universal lot. Whoa. That is wild. So then You've that's how they kidding. became friends. Oh my gosh. Crichton had this book that he had written after in 1970 called Five Patients, and it was about his time working at the hospital and about the costs and politics of the American healthcare system and five of the patients that he dealt with at his time while he was in medical school. Mm. And so he had told Spielberg about it and said, oh, I want to turn this into something. He wrote a pilot for it. Uh Nothing came of it until the 90s. There we go. Right time and place, and then Spielberg was like, "Let's make it." Boom, ER. Yep. Way later, but I that was it. that was from his real world experiences. But it was just God, another twenty yeah. years until oh, it actually man. becomes something. It takes and it takes a lot to get that context to realize where these seeds are planted and how long they percolate and change. They had one version of it. Nope, it's got no, that's not quite right. That's not good enough. Uh, work yeah. on a bunch of other stuff, go off in all these other different directions, come right back around. Well, pull this out of the desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God. ER, all boom, think, biggest yeah. thing. Yeah, we all think that the thing we have to do after college is the most important. Right. It's like maybe yeah. it was, but I mean, it came But about it might 20 take years. 20 years to actually make it happen. Yeah. That, and that's just what it takes. That's just what it, that's just how it happened. And the people that you have along the way. You never know. Yeah. You never know who's going to be your The cool guy, guy showing you around. <laughs> yeah, really. So Westworld was the highest grossing film of that year for MGM. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it was big in 73. He go, After that, he goes on a tear. Like I said, he had his downturn because he was like, bah, I'm fed up with science fiction and the process and all mm. that. So he wrote a bunch of other books not related to science fiction and then back in. Right about broken families. <laughs> um, and science. <laughs> and then in 1990, writes Jurassic Park. Spielberg comes back in. He's like... I'm going to buy the rights to this before it's even published. Michael Crichton writes the screenplay as well as the book, which is rare. Usually they buy the rights and then somebody else writes it. But he's seen, he's, you know, he's done a bunch of other stuff in the meantime. The film comes out in 93. He, like we said, then he did ER in 94. He wrote the film Twister in 96. I love that movie. (laughs) Interestingly, Michael Crichton wrote it with his wife. Really? Which this, this modern Westworld is also... A husband and wife. That's fascinating. Duo. He died in 2008, which was a shock to everybody, just like a shock in this story. It just comes out of nowhere. He had lymphoma. Apparently, he was diagnosed with it early that year and then died later Uh, that year at the age of 66. But because of his huge private life, like nobody knew. One of his dear friends, he Michael Crichton gave a talk at a university midway through 2008. 
and his friend didn't even know. He oh, s- maybe no. s- thought he was a little worse for wear or something, but it, it, no indication that he was on chemo this whole time and then just died at the end of the year. Uh, I saw in some research he would increasingly get up earlier and earlier each day and work more and more and sleep less and less as mm-hmm. like the deadline for these books are approaching, mm-hmm. which means that by the end he would sleep less than four hours because uh-huh. he'd be go to bed at 10 p.m. and wake up at 2 a.m. Right. and then just work that whole time. He right. was married five times. Four, of course, ended in divorce. And then the last mm-hmm. his last wife was pregnant, six months pregnant when he died oh. in 2008. And so he never, there's not really much at all about him, this guy who produced so much, what his life was, except for there's one book that came out in 1988 called Travels. And it's about the various experiences he's had. He's a, surprisingly also a really well-traveled individual. During all this time, he's also going all over the place. And it goes into his insecurities and his doubts and how he feels like a freak for being so mm-hmm. tall. And his interest in the paranormal and the psychic phenomena of life, which seems completely off the wall compared to the hard-nosed science fiction, definitely plausible. Cause and effect. (laughs) Yeah, in modern times. But in in his private life, he's equally as fascinated by tarot card readings and things of that nature and astrology and like all of that stuff. Mm. I like this guy. Yeah. He sounds um, really, really, really fascinating. He sounds really, I don't know, like he, he sounds like he has a lot of convictions, but there, there, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of different sides of him that, that maybe that's not what he was trying to talk about in that particular piece of writing or media um, yeah. that you would just never get to meet that side of him unless you were actually, you know, sharing a, a cup of coffee or something with him. Yeah. That, uh, and it makes me sad that he's not a, around, that that's. Not possible that he's not out there talking and and uh, yeah he did have there was unfortunately one life yeah one situation at the end which speaking of what you're saying about him not being around like his last book state of fear was about global warming mm-hmm. and it a lot of people took issue with it because he presented less of an anthropocentric view being like it's not just about humans and so it got a lot of guff because he that was seen as like a climate change denying mm. sort of situation but a lot of his friends say like well things have changed since he wrote that in 2008 mm-hmm. and if he was around today i'm sure he would be able to speak for it and would not have yeah. that hard of a stance yeah. as he did but yeah like you said because he's so on his own there's just not, there's not a, that a, much not a lot out there yeah and the and the last i guess bit in terms of him in an interview he was saying his experience is of not being gifted at writing and having to try really hard, work really hard, and put in long hours and concentrate. He said, I don't think I have any natural abilities. I just work really hard. It's something I wanted to do, and I'm very happy that I get to be doing it. Mm. Which is not something that you hear. You hear about these people that did it because they have some sort of innate talent or they have some kind of gift. No. And he was always like, well, I, I tried so hard no, not to do it. it. And then eventually I realized, no, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And then I worked It really took hard. a long time to realize that's what he wanted. And then he just wanted it. He just wanted and kept wanting and wanting and, yeah. and, and got it done. And that's what, that's what he lived on is the want for it. It's yeah. not the, well, it just bleeds out of my veins. <laughs> my mind is a garden. Uh, no, he, he wanted to make those things happen. And that's what he lived it on. Yeah. And also tying back to Westworld, as now that we know the original movie, this is a movie that almost didn't get made by a rookie director 
with no budget and it is the start of special effects <laughs> the, by computers like yes that itself is the most amazing legacy you could imagine and let nobody alone. knows that yeah all of what you just said <laughs> nobody knows that no you do you wrote uh, lost world right yeah. <laughs> you know, like, no like, like that's an incredible wild feat uh, that he directed and, that movie, that, and he, yeah. yeah. And then now, now it's sitting on this massive property. Now it is. Yeah. Now it's like massive. It's a franchise. It's huge. It is huge. It's one of the biggest properties on TV right now, and it's just wild to me that this guy has done this much. That he was able to find some of these opportunities. That he had some of these people in his life, <laughs> right. uh, like Steven Spielberg, just walk. Yeah, I'll take you up to right here. This is where this is where the orca is. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Um, this is a name that I've known my entire life. I've grown up with with Jurassic Park. It's one, probably one of my, my favorite movies. Um, but this is a name that I've never known anything about. And part of me I've, has an intense amount of guilt for that. <laughs> and now even more so of learning just how much I feel like I would have loved to have just like listened to the guy speak. Uh, yeah, in person. Um, so that's that's kind of where it's where it's sitting with me right now. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. All right, guys, that that's it for Michael Crichton. But real quick, we are starting something new. We're starting something big. We're going to be doing a, a little bit bigger episodes. We want to we want to take a, a, a step out into a larger world here. So we're going to be doing some multi-part series. There's a lot of well, actually, I should say there's not a lot coming out now. Because we're all stuck inside and nobody Obviously can make Obviously the anything. world's changed. And we've been thinking a lot about wanting to get into some classics and some popular things that maybe we, there are some lesser known stories behind or, or those types of things. So we're broadening things the like scope here. like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Steven Spielberg's works, big movies that everybody knows, these things that people are using as comfort items. They're going back to watching all the Lord of the Rings Absolutely. or all the Harry Potters during this time. And it's like, what, what are, how did that come to be? So we're going to be uh, putting up some polls on our Instagram, our social medias, and we want to hear what you're most interested in. We're going to get to all of this stuff, but we want to, we want to see what you're most interested in, what you're excited about. So please uh, be on the lookout for that or reach out to us as always. You can at, always. At AlliteratePod. At illiterate pod on Instagram, and uh, we'll catch you all next week.